Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Is it possible that you might outlive your money during your retirement? I want to help you avoid that dilemma. Come to one of our free live events, Three Keys to Retirement Planning. You'll learn about Social Security, estate planning, and investing for retirement. The events are free, but there's limited seating at all these events. So register online or find out about upcoming events uh, all around the country. Just visit us at rickedelman.com. I want to ask you a question. Are you still doing it wrong? I'm sorry to say that, yeah, you are. Dalbar has released yet again its most recent results of its annual quantitative analysis of investor behavior study. Boy, that's a mouthful. Here's the bottom line. We all know how mutual funds perform each year. Right? We know how the stock market performs. We know how the bond market performs. You know, we just look at the S&P 500. We look at the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index. And we also know how mutual funds that invest in stocks and bonds perform, right? Because they publish their performance data on a regular basis. And we know that if the stock market is going up and you're an investor in a stock fund, your fund is going up. And if the stock market's going down, your fund is going down. Oh, sure, we might be able to say that you're going up or down a little bit differently because you might not own the exact stocks in your fund that perfectly match the S&P 500. You might not have a bond portfolio that perfectly reflects the Barclays aggregate bond index. But birds of a feather, right? If the stock market generally is going up, your stock fund probably is generally going up more or less in pace with the market indices. Therefore, you would assume if the stock market's going up and a stock fund is going up and you're an investor in the stock fund, you're going up too. Because you're an investor in the fund, therefore you own shares of the fund. And if the fund shares are rising, you're profiting. That's not how it works. That's not what's happening. You are not enjoying the profits of your stock fund, even when the stock fund is rising because the S&P is rising. It's not what's happening. And Dalbar proves it. In 2018, last year, the S&P fell about 4.5%. It was a terrible year for the stock market, one of the only years it's lost money in the last decade. The market was down about 4.5% last year. The average investor of stock funds didn't lose 4.4. The average investor lost 9.4. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? <laughs> How could it be that the average investor of stock funds lost twice as much money as the average funds themselves? The answer is simple. When you hear that the mutual funds you own are reporting performance data, they're reporting data for the calendar year. They're looking at the results from January 1 through December 31. And they're assuming that you owned the shares for that same period of time, that you didn't buy or sell during the year. But that's not what investors do. Hence the name of Dalbar's study, Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior. What Dalbar recognizes is that investors don't invest on January 1, 
and sell on December 31. Investors are adding to their funds during the year, and they're selling their funds during the year. And it's the timing of those buys and sells that determines your investment results. And last year, although the market fell four and a half, the average investor fell nine and a half, twice as much. Because the timing of when you bought and when you sold stunk. You were bad at it. And not only were you bad at it overall, you were bad at it specifically. In August, for example, August was a really good month. The stock market was up 3.5% that month. But the average investor didn't gain 35 The average investor only gained one8 Why? Because they weren't invested for the entire month of August. At some point, you had sold in July and you didn't buy by August 1. Or you were invested on August 1 and you grew scared that by the end of the month things wouldn't be as good and you sold. You weren't there all 31 days. And therefore you missed some of the profits. And oh, by the way, this is not just 2018 that this happened. Dalbar has been doing this research for 30 years, and it's the same story every year. For the last 10 years, the S&P 500 was up 13% per year. The average fund investor, 9.7. Over the last 30 years, the S&P is up 10%. The average investor, 4.1. The average investor missed out on 60% of the profits. Why? Because you refuse to buy and hold. You instead insist on buying and selling and buying and selling and buying and selling. Your active trading is causing you to get out of the market very often, and your timing stinks. You're selling when you should be buying. You're buying when you should be selling, when in fact you're doing all this trading when you should be simply holding. Oh, by the way, this isn't just true for people who are trying to get rich quick in the stock market. This is equally true for people who are trying to get rich safely, slowly, in the bond market. People who invest in bonds tend to be more risk-averse. They tend to be more conservative investors. They don't want to expose themselves to the risks of the stock market. And so they buy bonds. Well, guess what? Last year, 2018, inflation was up 1.9%, which means you needed to earn 1.9% to break even. But the average bond investor didn't earn 1.9%. The average bond investor last year lost almost 3% of their money. Horribly worse than inflation. You would have done better sticking your money in a bank account And holding it there. You would have done better sticking your money in a bond fund and holding it there. But you didn't. You traded back and forth. The average bond fund investor losing 3%. That was last year. What about the last 10 years? Inflation's been up 1.8% per year for the past 10 years. The average bond fund investor, they haven't gone up 1.8%. They've gone up 0.7%. And the last 30 years... Inflation's been averaging 2.5% the past 30 years. The average bond fund investor, they're not up 2.5%. They're up 0.3% per year. Do you see the problem that trading creates? So I want to ask you a real simple question. Are you a long-term investor? 
Now, when I ask that question in our live events, just about every hand in the audience goes up. Just about everybody says, yes, I'm a long-term investor. I'm focusing on my kid's college education in the next decade. I'm focusing on my own retirement, which is 10 or 20 or 30 years away. I'm a long-term investor. And you know what my response is to people who make that claim? You're kidding yourself. Some are outright lying. You're not a long-term investor. You're a short-term trader, and you're doing that over long periods. That's different from being a long-term investor. A long-term investor is a person who buys investments and holds them for years, even decades, not merely weeks or months, based on what they think is about to happen next because of the news of the day. So I'll ask you again. Are you a long-term investor or are you a short-term trader? Because as Dalbar shows us, the market's provide the returns you're seeking, stock market and the bond market, over long periods, you get the returns you're seeking, but it requires that you remain invested in those markets without fail, without exception, without interruption. If you're struggling to understand why your investment returns aren't better than you want, aren't as high as you've expected, aren't matching what you're hearing in the media, well, we can help you figure that out by looking not at the investments you own necessarily, but at the behaviors you're engaging in regarding those investments. Let us do an analysis for you. Let us do an evaluation. Let us take a look at what you're trying to do and see if it's matching how you're trying to do it. Give us a call, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. Let us help you like we've helped thousands of folks just like you over the past 30 years. Online at rickedelman.com. We're taking telephone calls here on the Rick Edelman Show. Heading off to Olive Branch, Mississippi. David, you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rick, how are you? Doing great, thank you. How can I help? Hey, um, I just turned 60 a few weeks ago, and after 32 years working for the same company, we had a restructuring, and I was let go. Hmm. I'm receiving a year severance package where I will get paid for 52 weeks the same amount I've been getting paid. Mm-hmm. Between pension and the 401k I have, I've got about $1.5 million to invest. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to protect and grow the nest egg, but would like to consider not working again mm-hmm. and taking out monthly income from the balance on, on the earnings. I, I need about $6,000 a month. I guess my question is, what's a reasonable rate of return these days for a million and a half without having to worry about touching the nest egg? I am, you know, at my age, somewhat conservative, but I'm sure I have to have a balanced portfolio with some aggressive investments in there as well. Appreciate your response. So I'm sorry to have you go through that restructuring at work. It's a common tale. Uh, the company seems to be doing right by you by giving you pay for an entire year at your uh, current salary. And at your age, um, we have to see if work becomes optional. For the sake of this conversation, we're going to assume that you need to generate $6,000 a month from your investments. So you need $72,000 a year in income. You've got $1.5 million available to you in your savings, and that translates to about 5% per year in distributions. If we included Social Security, it becomes even easier. You need even less than 5% per year. So bottom line, you're in excellent financial shape. But you said something really interesting. You said that you didn't want to touch your nest egg. 
Does that mean never? Meaning you want to die with the same 1.5 million invested as you have today? Well, no. Obviously, I would like that to grow. I, I, I don't want to start taking out principal for my for my lifestyle. Oh, wait, wait, but, wait, 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 um, wait, 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 David. Does this mean when you okay. die at age 100, you want to have the same balance in your account? You never want to touch the balance. I would like the balance to grow, but I never, as of right now. Oh, you mean you when you die, be, you want to be wealthier than you are today? Absolutely. Why? Well, for, for my kids. Okay. All right. Now we're talking. So you are interested in preserving your assets for the benefit of your children and grandchildren? Yes. What if I were to show you an easier way to accomplish the task that will allow you to spend more of your money on yourself while also protecting your inheritance for the children and grandchildren? You've got my attention. It's called life insurance. That's what life insurance is for. In other words, instead of you putting $1.5 million aside where you'll never touch it so that it's there for your kids, why don't you just buy a life insurance policy in the amount of $1.5 million? The premium for that will be pennies on the dollar. Hello? Okay, yeah, I'm processing. And I'll even take so, it a step yeah. further. Since the $1.5 million is for the benefit of the children, why not make them pay for the policy? <laughs> well, I've got one in college and one in his first year of full-time employment. So you see my point. We can... I, I, do, I do see your point. We can, through effective financial planning, manage all of the above goals that you have because sometimes the goals are in conflict you want to make sure your lifestyle is comfortable you also want to protect and support your children and eventually grandchildren all of that is fabulous we can accomplish a lot of that so the reason I'm, i'm emphasizing this is that if we want to generate for you the income you need out of your portfolio with the added caveat you can't touch principal generating 5% per year out of the portfolio becomes a challenge because it's likely that 5% per year withdrawals will exceed the growth of the portfolio. When we look at the interest and dividends and growth of the account, I'm not sure it's going to produce 5% per year all the time. And there's another thing we haven't even talked about yet that is the elephant in the room. Do you know what that is? Uh, not yet, but you're going to tell me. Inflation. Because if you need six grand a month right now, guess how much you're going to need 10 years from now, 20 years from now. When you're in your 80s, you're going to need twice as much income as you need today because of the rising cost of living. Health care gets more expensive. Property taxes increase. Groceries increase. Gasoline prices increase and so on. So if you need six grand today at age 60 you're likely going to need twice as much, assuming a 3.2% average annual rate of inflation, which is what the average rate of inflation has been since 1926. Therefore, costs double over a 20, 25-year period of time. We not only have to produce enough profit in the portfolio to give you the income you need today, we have to have enough profit in the portfolio to stay in the portfolio, to let the portfolio grow in value so that it can produce even more income for you next year to offset the cost of inflation. See how challenging it gets? Now, it's a lot easier 
if it's okay with you that we spend down your principal. Because if you're willing to die broke, if you're willing to have your account value erode over the next 40 years, then we can more easily generate for you 5% per year of the portfolio value as an income stream. Social Security will also make it dramatically easier for you because once you start to receive that, we don't have to generate 6000 a month out of the portfolio. We've only got to generate 4600 and that gets you know so much easier. In other words, instead of generating $72,000 a year, we only have to generate 55000 a year. And to do that on a $1.5 million portfolio is so much easier. It's not a 5% rate of withdrawal that we have to produce. It's only 3.6% per year, which is so much easier to produce with a higher degree of confidence that we're not going to erode principal or go broke over time. Right. So Social Security makes a really big difference to you. And we'll deal with that question when you turn 62. Bottom line is this, David. You're in excellent financial condition. Yes, you are, in fact, able to retire now forever. And all we want to really do is make sure that we're maximizing the effectiveness and efficiency of the overall portfolio. We want to make sure that the money is invested in a proper methodology so that we're managing your risks that exist in the investment landscape, that we're able to generate the monthly income that you need, that we are protecting your children either by not spending down your principal or by providing life insurance to the children. And we want to make sure that we're taking into consideration the impact of inflation. I am highly confident, based on the resources you have available and the income you say you need from that, that you can achieve all the above. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, so good for you. I'm really uh, glad to see you're in the condition that you're in. And the key now is to make sure we structure a financial plan to execute and deliver on the objectives that you have. It's really that simple. Sure. I like the idea of life insurance. I had really not, I've got a small life insurance policy now, term, uh, but I like that idea. Uh, where, where I would be able to forward that to my kids upon my death. Well, like the, that. the problem with the term policy is that it expires at some point. Do you know what the term is? In, you have a, in four years. In four years, your term policy expires. Well, that means you have to do one of two things. Term. You either have to die within four years, <laughs> or we have to replace your policy with a whole life policy that will remain in effect no matter how long you live. In other words, for your whole life. Okay. So normally we recommend term life for our clients because normally their need for insurance disappears. But for estate planning purposes, term life doesn't work because you need to make sure that the insurance benefit is paid upon your death no matter when that might be. So whole life insurance is a more appropriate solution for you from an estate planning perspective. And are you married? Uh, not anymore. Okay. So we don't have to be concerned about a spouse. Because if you were married, then we would have to get a special kind of whole life policy called a second-to-die policy, meaning the policy doesn't pay off at the first death because the money goes to the surviving spouse. It's the second death that the money goes to the children. And therefore, we would want an insurance policy that insured both of you and paid the death benefit at the second death, called a second-to-die policy. You don't have to worry about that because you're not married. Correct. So this is why there's no substitute for effective financial planning for all the above. We can tackle this for you if you like. Our closest office to you is in Memphis, which is, I'm not sure that's terribly close. 
it's not even a big deal whether or not you're within driving distance of our office. We have clients in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Even our clients who live around the corner rarely come to the office. Everything is by phone and email these days. So we're happy to help you however you choose to be helped. Real simple. Uh, If you would like us to. Um, I I definitely would like to pursue that. Well, I'm going to put you on hold. We're going to get your telephone number, and I'll have one of my colleagues give you a call. Okay. Rick, thanks very much for your help. I appreciate your insight. You're very welcome, David. Good for you, and uh, congratulations on your success. Thank you. I'm Rick Edelman, 888-PLAN-RIC. Anytime you like, give us a call, and we'll answer your financial questions as well. 888-PLAN-RIC, online at ricedelman.com. Hour two of the truth about money here on KFI AM 640. We've got a variety of questions for you every week on taxes, investments, mortgages, insurance, college planning, retirement planning, buying houses, leasing cars, getting out of debt. Today, we're featuring some of the calls we've received recently, and we'll tackle situations that might be very similar to you. Either you're in this dilemma, or maybe one day you will be. Let us help you. Call us at 888 Plan Rick. That's 888. 888- 752-6742 here at Edelman Financial Engines. If you can't call while we're doing the show, no problem. You can just send me your audio clip. Use your smartphone to record your voice and send it via email to askrick at rickedelman.com. That's what Irv did. Here's his question. Hello, Rick. My name is Irv, and thank you for taking this question. Recently, you said that Social Security should be no more than 30 to 40% of someone's expenses in retirement. I am now retired and my Social Security is about 45% of our expenses. When my wife retires within about two years, our combined Social Security will be about 70% of our expenses. It seems to me that the more that Social Security covers our expenses, the less we need to draw from our investments. Please clarify. Thank you. Yes, we're talking about two different things, Irv. Uh, There's a difference between how much of your expenses Social Security will cover and how much of your expenses you are dependent on for Social Security to be able to allow you to pay for. There's a difference there. So, yeah, it's great that you don't have to touch your investments because you're getting income from Social Security. That's very different from saying, without Social Security, I wouldn't be able to afford it. In other words, you're the poster child. You have a lot of money in investments, it sounds like, and a relatively small amount of need Lifestyle-wise, you're doing a good job at not spending a lot of money relative to your investments. That's great. So the fact that your expenses are largely being covered by Social Security is fine, but that's not the way it is meant to be for most folks. In other words, what we discover is that according to the national statistics, for more than 60% of American retirees, they get most of their money from Social Security, meaning without Social Security, they would be in poverty. That's what you want to avoid. So you're doing it correctly, Irv, and I wish everybody else was as well. So look at your own situation. You know how much money you need on a monthly basis to support your lifestyle. Where is that money going to come from? Now, prior to retirement, the money comes from your job or jobs. So that paycheck or all the paychecks that you're collecting between you and your spouse is what you use to pay your bills. What happens when the paychecks stop? How will you then pay your bills? Well, you're going to turn to three other sources. One, 
is a pension. You're probably not getting a pension. Only 17% of companies offer them these days. So unless you're working for a state or uh, local or federal government, you're not going to qualify for a pension most likely. Social Security, which pretty much everybody is qualifying for, and that provides a certain amount of income. The very most is around $2,500 a month. The average check is $1,400 a month. You can find out exactly what your Social Security benefit will be. Just go to ssa.gov, and you can very easily discover how much you can expect to receive from Social Security. Is the amount of money you'll get enough to pay your bills. Can you live on the 1400 a month? That's the average check. Can you live even on the 2500 a month, which is the maximum check? So if that's not enough, you got to go to item number three, your investments. Do you have enough money in investments to provide you the income you need beyond pensions and social security? That's the real question. Now, amazingly, most Americans don't know the answer to that question. Most Americans don't know how much money they're going to need in investments to be able to generate the income in retirement. They don't know how much income their investments will be able to generate. They don't know how many years they'll be able to receive that income before they deplete their savings and investments. Most folks have no idea what their future expenses are going to be in retirement because they've got no experience doing any of this. That's why you turn to a financial planner. We have that experience. We have that expertise. That's our job. It's sort of like when your car breaks down. You don't know what's wrong. That's why you take it to a mechanic, someone who has the experience and expertise, the tools to be able to fix it for you. Same thing with a financial planner. So you want to make sure that you are able to sustain your lifestyle in retirement for as long as you might live from the troika of pensions, Social Security, and investments. And the sooner you talk with a financial planner, the more easily you can make adjustments needed to be able to ensure that your retirement security is everything you want it to be. Because if we have a lot of years to take advantage of planning for this, we can make small tweaks in your expenses or your income. But if retirement is, you know, Thursday, well, you know, then I'm not sure how quickly we can uh, really get all this figured out. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money here on The Rick Edelman Show. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. Let us help you like we've helped so many thousands of folks just like you all across the country. 888-752-6742. Online, you can visit us at ricedelman.com. Let's uh, go to the telephones. Frank's on the phone. He called in from Lawrence, Massachusetts. Frank, you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rick, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Long-time listener here. Well, thank you very much. You're more than welcome to join. Uh, so how can I help you? So, Rick, my, uh, my question pertains to uh, investing in either a Roth 401k or a traditional 401k. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is the first time in my career that I've had the opportunity to choose which one to invest in. Right. I'm 62 years uh, young. Uh, so I can uh, invest the maximum, which I believe is about what twenty four thousand five hundred, and it's it's a it's confusing to me because if I can invest post tax in the Roth versus in the pre tax, it seems to me the post tax investment is actually more dollars, so it would make more sense to invest in the Roth than in the traditional four hundred one k. So can you shed some light on that for me? Sure. 
traditionally, you. when you have a 401k at your employer, uh, those contributions generally have been pre-tax, meaning you get a tax deduction for the money you put into the 401k plan. Nowadays, many employers are offering a Roth option within the plan, which says that when you put money in the plan, there's no tax deduction for the contribution. But later in retirement, the withdrawals are tax free, at least under current tax law. So it raises the question, which should you do? Should you put money in and get a tax deduction now or should you get a tax deduction later? It doesn't matter. In other words, investing $10 now and paying the taxes later or investing $8 now and not paying taxes later, it's the same math. It doesn't make any difference. And that is why Congress allows you to do either one because it's neutral okay. from a tax perspective. Now, we're assuming that there's no change in tax rates between now and the future. Um, if that changes, then so will the math. But Right. On the assumption that the today's tax rate is the same as the future tax rate, it doesn't make any difference. Whether you pay the tax now or whether you pay the tax later, the net value of your account is going to be remaining unchanged. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, I appreciate you uh, bringing clarity to the, uh, to the question. So here's the way you answer it then. Do you believe that your tax rate in the future will be lower than your tax rate today? Uh, based on the current uh, situation, I think tax rates will probably be a little bit higher in the future. If that's true, then you would much yep. rather pay the tax today at today's lower rate. That argues for the yep. deductible account, not the Roth. Okay. Now, okay. notice I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with you. I'm simply saying yeah. based on what you said, that's what you should do. Right, right. Okay. Well, again, uh, I appreciate it. It's uh, been very helpful. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks so much for calling, Frank. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rick. Take care. Have a good day. You too. You can do what Frank did and call us at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742. You can visit us online as well at ricedelman.com. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. So let me ask you this. Where do you get your investment and financial advice? Where do you get advice specifically for a 401k? You have a retirement plan at work? Good for you. Where do you get advice on how you should be handling your 401k at work? An academic research study was just completed on this, and what they discovered is that people tend to get advice about their workplace retirement plan from the person at work they believe is the smartest, most skilled person. They discovered that employees working in a restaurant have the attitude that the smartest person in the restaurant is the sushi chef. And that's who they turn to with their questions about 401ks. You must be joking! Employees at a grocery store believe that the butcher is the most skilled person in the store, and that's who they ask when they have questions about their 401k. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. They don't ask award-winning financial planners for help. 
So this is a little frustrating to me. The researchers discovered that workers who seek money advice turn to the colleague they perceive as the most skilled, even if the skill has nothing to do with money. And that's the problem. So I put the question to you. For your 401k, for your 403b, for your thrift savings plan, for your 457 plan, who at work did you turn to for help? Do you know that a lot of employers provide financial experts for help? That's the work we do at Edelman Financial Engines. We're the largest independent provider of advice to 401k plans in the country. Employers hire us to do this so that they're giving access to their workers to the professional experienced advice that we offer. Are you taking advantage of it? You can call us at Edelman Financial Engines at 888-PLAN-RIC or visit us online at ricedelman.com. Let's head off to Milwaukee. Phil's on the line. How you doing, Phil? Welcome to the show. I'm doing fine, Rick. How can I help you? Okay, this has to do with the RMD, the required minimum distribution. Okay. I have two accounts. One account, I get a, a monthly payment, and the other account, I really don't want to touch at all. And they're both worth about, you know, $85,000, each. I get a form, 5498 from one of them, and then I called the other one that's been giving me a monthly payment, and they say they don't have to send me a form anymore. So when I figure this out for tax purposes, I still combine both amounts that are left in each of the accounts? Yes. Okay. That's not what you now, wanted what to happened? hear, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, it isn't, but I'll take that as an answer because on that form that I got from one of them, it says it's checked required minimum distribution. So let me make life simple for you. When you have retirement accounts, and I don't care what kind they are, whether they're 401k, 403b, thrift savings plan, IRA, when you have any of these kinds of retirement accounts, you have to make minimum distributions after the age of 70 and a half. Now, that first year, you can actually delay, in many cases, to 72. I won't bother going there for the moment. But once you're in your 70s, on an annual basis, you have to make a withdrawal from each of the accounts Depending on what those accounts are, you might be able to make a single withdrawal from one of them on behalf of all of them. It varies depending on the kind of accounts you've got. And you've got to make a withdrawal based on the total value of all of the accounts uh, as of the prior December 31. So whether or not one of the custodians of those accounts, whether or not one of those institutions is sending you a form or paperwork or IRS notices is irrelevant. It doesn't alleviate you of your obligation to pay the taxes that are due. Now, it's possible, since you said that one of them is already sending you money on a monthly basis, that money counts. That counts toward the RMD. So if they are sending you money monthly in the first place, that just reduces the amount you then have to withdraw, at least for that account's value. So the best advice I can give you is to work closely with a professional tax preparer, someone who is well-skilled with 
retirement accounts, required minimum distribution rules, because the rules can be tricky, they can be complicated, and if you mess up, there's a very stiff IRS penalty. 50% of what you should have taken but failed to take is what you'll pay in penalties in addition to the taxes. So you may, you do want to make sure you get it right. But the short answer for you is, Phil, yes, you do need to make sure you're taking minimum distributions on an annual basis from the sum total of all of your retirement accounts. And depending on which accounts you've got, you might have to take money from each certain account as opposed to aggregating it from one single account. Okay? Okay. So clarify that last statement. I didn't quite follow you on that last part that you just stated. All right. Let's say that you have uh, 100 grand in an IRA and 100 grand in a 401k, total of 200 grand. And you calculate your RMD, and you say to yourself, why should I bother taking half the money from each of the two accounts? Why don't I just take all of it from my IRA? This way, it's simpler and easier. Well, you're right. It is simpler and easier to take one check from one of the accounts. The problem is the IRS doesn't allow that. If you have a 401k, you must take your RMD from the 401k based on the value of the 401k. You can't take from the IRA the money that is representative of the 401k requirement. So that's an example that even though you took the proper amount, you didn't take it from the proper place, and the IRS will penalize you anyway. <laughs> so, if, for example, what I have now, I have taken out $6,500 from one account. Okay. The other account, I could get by with just taking out $1,000. Okay. Is that doable or not? It depends. It depends on what that second account's balance is and what the RMD requirement from that balance would be and whether or not that account is permitted to allow you to take the money from a different account on behalf of that account. You see my point, how complicated this is? This is complicated. They're making, for this us older generation, they're making it very complicated. And for no practical purpose. The IRS should theoretically only care that it's getting the proper amount. The fact that it's getting it from one account as opposed to another account shouldn't make any difference. And the fact that it does make a difference is absurd. It's The Congress wrote these rules in a ridiculous way, unnecessarily complicated. It's almost like they're trying to trap you, trick you into doing it wrong so that they can collect a 50% penalty. It's obscene. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And I've been arguing for years to have Congress simplify the rules to make it easier for ordinary folks like you and me to be compliant with the law. Because you want to be compliant, you're trying to be compliant, and despite your best efforts to be compliant, they trick you because of the way that they design the rules. It's crazy. So, And that's why I say to you that since the rules are as complicated as they are, delegate the task to a professional. This way, you don't have to worry about it. They'll do it. And best of all, if they make a mistake, they owe them the liability, not you. So if there is a 50% penalty, they'll pay it instead of you. Okay. Okay, that wasn't the answer I was hoping you were going to give. <laughs> well, that, when it comes to taxes, that's usually the case. <laughs> thanks a lot. You're... Okay, well, thanks a lot, Rick. I enjoy talking with you. Well, thank you very much, Phil. Even though it wasn't what you wanted to hear, at least the conversation was fun. Uh, if you've got questions and problems about your IRAs and retirement accounts and trying to figure out if you are required to make minimum distributions and how much and when and from which account, hey, folks, as they say often on TV, don't try this at home. 
turn to a professional. We can help you. Triple H Plan Rick. If we can't do the calc for you or clarify it sufficiently, we can certainly refer you to a professional tax advisor. We recommend uh, tax preparers for our clients all the time. Happy to do it for you, too. Give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK here at Edelman Financial Engines. You can also visit us online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742 online at ricedelman.com. We're taking telephone calls here on the Rick Edelman Show off to Framingham, Massachusetts. Barry's with us on the program. How are you doing, Barry? I'm fine, Rick. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much. How can I help? Great. Uh, well, thanks for taking my call, first off. And I just want to say I'm a long-term listener, and I really appreciate everything you do. I really learned a lot by um, listening to your show. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And what can I do for you today? Well, so I'm calling because my wife recently started a new job, and she's eligible for a 403B plan. Mm-hmm. And I was looking into it, and the, I guess the sponsor is TIAA Crafts, mm-hmm. and there's only like 10 options for her to invest in, and they're all annuities, a mixture of either variable or fixed annuities. Yeah. And I'm used to using low-cost index funds to yep. invest, so I'm wondering if it's worth putting money into this 403B, or if I should just take that money I would have invested there and put it into our, our brokerage account, which yeah. is invested in does your funds. Does your wife's employer provide a matching contribution? She, no, they do not. Oh, that stinks. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to tell you that if you want to do what you just described, I won't object. And that's very unusual for me to say that regarding the topic we're discussing here. So let me bring everyone up to speed. When you work for an employer, they often offer a retirement plan. If you work in the for-profit world, the retirement plan most commonly is a 401k plan. But in the nonprofit world, school systems, hospitals, as well as charities, they don't use a 401k. They use a 403b, which is – so your wife's working for who? Hospital, school system? School system. School system. So very common. And TIAA CREF is the largest provider of 403Bs in the industry. And they were doing this, quite frankly, long before 401Ks came onto the landscape. Uh, TIAA, the, the letter I in TIAA is insurance. TIAA stands for Teachers Insurance Annuity Association of America. And so we have to recognize that, yes, they are annuity products. Now, back in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 70s, there were no other options. So, okay, you grin and bear it. But then the world of mutual funds came up. And so Congress amended the law, creating something called 403B7, which allows these nonprofits to introduce mutual funds into their retirement plans, not limiting them to annuity products. And that's when TIAA created CREF the College Retirement Equities Fund. And the CREF products are, in fact, mutual funds. And so if your wife's school system offers the CREF side of the equation, there will be mutual funds available there. But if they don't, if they're still using the 403B version rather than the 403B7, then you're right. There's nothing available other than annuity products. And these annuity products generally are very expensive, They uh, generally underperform 
the markets because, by definition, annuity products are more conservative. So while we're on the subject of TIAA craft, let me tell you one of my frequent rants about this. Say that you put your money into CREF using their mutual funds, and you do that, and these are investing in the stock market, for example, and you're happily doing that for the course of your career. You're nearing retirement, and you want to reduce your investment risk. So you transfer the money from CREF over to TIAA, getting the money out of the stock market and into one of the annuities. This way, your attitude is, I'm reducing my risk, and I don't have to worry about the stock market crashing, etc. Great except for one problem. What you might not realize, because what TIAA CREF might not tell you, is that when the money was in CREF, you had full liquidity capabilities of your money. But when you transfer it over to TIAA, which is an irreversible decision, by the way, you're limited to making withdrawals of no more than 10% per year of the value of the account. You've given up liquidity on 90% of the money you've been saving for your whole career. And too often, People who deal with TIAA CREF don't know that they've just made a one-way trip out of CREF and into TIAA. Since there's no matching contribution by the employer, you're asking the right question. Should my wife put money into an account that is expensive and underperforming when the only benefit of doing so is a tax deduction, when I can instead just invest on an after-tax basis into alternative investments that in the long run have better tax treatment because of capital gains rates and the better opportunity or potential for returns. So you're not crazy to be thinking that way. In fact, we might even take it a step further and you can have your cake and eat it too to the extent that your wife is eligible to contribute to a deductible IRA. So she can do to some degree in her IRA what she would have been able to do in the 403B. And there's another thing to consider. It's possible that her employer will offer, through the 403B, a money market fund. So your wife can contribute the money to the money market fund, and then you can see if the employer will allow her to do something called an in-service distribution, where even though she's still working there, she can transfer the money from the money market fund to an IRA. So she gets the best of both worlds. She can contribute to the maximum under the rules in a 403B, which is more than you can do in an IRA, transferring the money to an IRA, enabling her to continue to enjoy the tax deferral while at the same time picking the investments that you and she want her to have. And how often could she do an in-service transfer? It depends, it depends on the employer. So sometimes it's once a year. Sometimes there's no limit. Uh, it really depends on the employer as to whether they allow it and the details associated with that. So talk to the employer and find out greater detail about uh, what options are truly available in the 403B plan, whether or not there's a money market type uh, product available, and whether or not they allow in-service distributions. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks for the information. You're very welcome. I'm glad you called. And your millions of school teachers and hospital employees are suffering the same limitations as your wife, Barry, because of the antiquated rules associated with 403Bs. I don't understand why Congress hasn't updated the rules and fixed this so that people who work for nonprofits have the same investment opportunities that people who work for for for-profit companies have the opportunity to do. Even federal workers have a better opportunity through the Federal Thrift Savings Plan. So it's a real shame that so many millions of school teachers and hospital employees are stuck with, frankly, what I consider to be an antiquated uh, investment uh, program. Yeah, no, I was surprised at that. 
limitations. Her other school system, she was working before, it was a 403B through Fidelity, and it was all mutual funds and index funds. So you might want to have her talk with her HR department and try to motivate them to um, uh, improving their retirement plan. And so here's what drives me nuts about it. Here at Edelman Financial Engines, we're America's largest independent provider of investment advice to employer retirement plans. Most of our clients are big 401k plans, but we also work with a lot of small businesses and their 401ks. And guess what? We work with a lot of 403b plans as well. We provide retirement advice to the employees of all of these uh, companies and uh, nonprofit organizations, school systems, hospitals, etc. We'll help you figure out how much to save, what to invest in, how you can get closer to your retirement goal. Nobody else is going to do that for you at work. Not your boss, not HR. They often don't tell you the stuff you need to know, but that's what we do. And so it really pains me, Barry, when I come upon folks who say that they're working for a nonprofit or a school system or a hospital, like your wife is, where they have retirement choices in their plan that are frankly not as good as alternative choices that are readily available. And we stand here ready to help. So encourage your wife to talk to her HR department to give us a call for our workplace division. So maybe we can help out in more ways than one. Okay. Barry, wish you the best of luck. All right. Thank you so much, Rick. Have a good day. You do the same. That's Barry from Framingham, Massachusetts. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. If you've got questions about whether you should participate in your retirement plan at work, how best to do so, what are your options if you're not really thrilled with the investment choices available, give us a call, 888-752-6742. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Triple H Plan Rick, online at ricestellman.com. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here at Triple H Plan Rick. That's Triple H 752-6742, online at ricestellman.com. And happy to tell you that the Smart Money Retirement Expo that we're staging Saturday, November 23rd in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, in a full day, a couple of dozen seminars, several keynote presentations, uh, you're going to have the opportunity to learn how to generate income from your investments in retirement, avoid the costs of long-term care, understand wills and trusts, maximize Social Security benefits, and discover the impact of longevity on your financial planning strategies. All that plus a whole lot more. It's the Smart Money Retirement Expo, Saturday, November 23rd, a $10 donation to the Boys and Girls Clubs for your admission. And we encourage you to register right now and choose whether you want to come to the a.m. session, breakfast included, or the p.m. session, lunch included. Get the full agenda and register online at smartmoneyretirementexpo.com. We were talking about Social Security in the last hour and how so many millions of American retirees are so dependent on it. Did you know that most Americans are doing it wrong? According to a study from the University of Michigan in conjunction with the Social Security Administration, almost all retirees claim their Social Security benefits at the wrong time. I am very disappointed. Because they're choosing to start their benefits at the wrong time, they are missing out collectively over the course of their lifetimes on $3.4 trillion in benefits. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. Yeah, I'm afraid I am. Here's what it comes down to. If you retire at 62 and you're eligible for $725 in benefits on a monthly basis, did you know that if you waited until you were 70, instead of getting 700 bucks, you would get almost 1300 
That's the difference. In this study, they ran 500,000 scenarios for 2,000 different people. They included a variety of different market conditions. All told, they produced 1 billion computer simulations. Yeah, these guys need a hobby. And what they discovered is that only 4% of Americans wait until age 70 to claim Social Security benefits, but 57% should be waiting. That is astonishing. 70% start receiving their benefits prior to age 64, but only 7% should be doing that. The lost income over the course of the lifetime, more than $110,000 per household. I don't know. Do you want to throw away $110,000? That's what is happening because people are choosing to start their Social Security benefits at the wrong age. 43% now, – now, now, wait, 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 wait wait a minute. I'm not suggesting, therefore, that you should just assume that the correct thing to do is to delay the start of your Social Security benefits. Notice how I phrased my conversation. I said that people are choosing to start their benefits at the wrong age. I didn't say that they're choosing to start their benefits at too early an age. In fact, this research found that nearly half would be better off by starting their benefits prior to age 70. So I'm simply saying that you want to do it like Goldilocks. You don't want to start too soon. You don't want to start too late. You want to get it just right. In fact, according to the data, if everybody took their benefits at the right time, the poverty rate among the elderly would be cut in half. That's how big a deal this is. And it's not just the relative poor who would benefit. The wealthiest retirees, if they chose the right time to start their benefits, would get 14% more over the course of their lives. Everybody would benefit. Those near poverty and those who are wealthy. And it is amazing how complicated Social Security is. When you should start your benefits depends not just on your age and your life expectancy, but your working record, how much money you're earning, whether you're still working. If you're married, how old is your spouse? What is the age disparity between you and your spouse? How long have you been married? Is your spouse working? What's your spouse's working record? Do you have children under the age of 16? Is one of you disabled? Are you divorced? Are you widowed? There are so many details and factors, it's absurdly complicated. That's why we're doing seminars all around the country, which includes a robust conversation on Social Security. It's why when you talk with my colleagues here at Edelman Financial Engines, Social Security is a massive part of the conversation because it really makes a big difference. More than half of Americans apply for their benefits before they reach their full retirement age. And there are Myths that interfere with people's efforts to get it right. For example, if you have a shorter life expectancy, should you claim your benefits earlier? Well, a lot of people will say, yeah, absolutely, because the only reason for delaying your benefits to get a bigger amount of money is if you're going to live long enough to enjoy the bigger amount of money. If you have a short life expectancy, then you shouldn't delay. Well, I'll grant you that theory, But here's the problem. According to the Stanford Center on Longevity, you know, I'm on the advisory board at the Center on Longevity, most people underestimate how long they're going to live. 
A 65-year-old male can expect to live to 84, a woman to age 87. Couples who are 65, one of them can expect to live to 92. And oh, by the way, if you're in your mid-50s, one in two women in their mid-50s, one in three men in their mid-50s will live past 90. So when you're saying, well, I think I'm going to have a shorter life expectancy, no, you're not because of health care. Improvements in medical technology, nutrition, exercise. By the time you are 84, I mean, this is the funny thing. If a 65-year-old today can expect to live to 84, guess what's going to be like in this world by the time you are 84? Life expectancy will then be into the 90s, even beyond into your hundreds. If you think you should take your Social Security benefits early because you're not going to live very long, I think you're kidding yourself. How about this one? Here's a very common myth. I have to claim my Social Security retirement benefit as soon as I quit working. No, you don't. Nobody said you have to do that. Just because you're not working doesn't mean you must start your Social Security benefit. Every year you delay from 62 to 70, your benefit grows 8% per year. Guaranteed by law. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you got a guaranteed 8% return from your investments? So if you're choosing, well, should I start my Social Security benefit at this young age or should I just tap into my investments for a little while so that I can delay my Social Security benefits? And when they start, I can cut back on my investment withdrawals. And finally, how about this one? I need to apply for my Social Security benefits before it goes bankrupt. Dude, look, Social Security is not going bankrupt. The trust fund is being depleted. That's a big deal. I don't want to minimize the importance of that. But the trust fund's depletion, which occurs currently projected in 2035, first of all, we're working hard to get Congress to solve the problem and to fix it so that doesn't happen. Second of all, even if it does happen, that means there's a reduction in benefits of about 25%. It doesn't mean the elimination of the Social Security system itself. You do not need to apply before that happens. And besides, what makes you think that when Congress fixes the problem, they're not going to help solve the problem by addressing current retiree benefits as well? So you need to get off of these myths. You need to make sure you have the facts. You need to make sure you're addressing your retirement security correctly. It's so funny. People, when they talk about retirement security, retirement planning... Investment management, everybody tends to think that's as financial planners, we're working only on that third piece, the investment management. But you know, when you do it right, your financial planning takes into consideration much more than your investment management. That's a key part. It's an important element here at Edelman Financial Engines. We're managing more than $200 billion in assets for individuals and families all around the country, a lot of it in the workplace 401k plans, a lot of it outside of those plans. But there's so much more to your retirement planning than just the retirement plan. How you handle your Social Security benefits are a key element of this. As pedestrian and mundane as that might appear to be, the impact is massive. And that's why we want to make sure you're getting the advice that you need. So if Social Security is headed your way as you're approaching age 62... And that means in your 50s, you've got to start anticipating this. You can't wait till you're 62 and then simply ask the question, well, should I take my benefits or not? I mean, if you are 62 and that's your question, great, call us, we'll answer it. But we'd much rather talk to you when you're in your 50s. Why? So that we can plan over the next decade. So that when 62 arrives, we know what to do at that moment. If you're already in your 60s, 
you've not yet started Social Security and you're trying to figure out whether or not you should, call us, 888-PLAN-REC, so that we can help make sure that you're doing it right. 888-PLAN-REC, online at ricedelman.com. We're out of time here on the program. That's a wrap. As a reward, you'll have no radio for the rest of the week. Go to your room. See you next week.